Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 24, we're looking at verses 24 through 27 as we're nearing the end of our multi-year series through the book of Acts. Today we're looking at a, a smaller piece. We're going to cover some larger swaths of the last few chapters here as we wrap things up in the next weeks. But today, Acts chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. And before we read this, if you're new here or if you're new to the book of Acts, let me just tell you what's going on. Uh, the first part of the book of Acts was focused on Peter, right? And the things that God did through him. The second half of the book is more focused on Paul and what God did through him. And, and it's not just these two alone, but they are the emphasis. And, and Paul goes on these missionary journeys. He does three. And each time he goes out, he sets out and he preaches the gospel and he makes disciples and he establishes leadership in different cities and helps them to plant churches and, and then he'll come back, right? And then he'll come back to Jerusalem and give reports. Then he'll go back out and do it a second time. And then he did it a third time. And he comes back after his third missionary journey and he finds out that he's facing a lot of opposition from some of his own Jewish brothers and sisters. In particular, there is a group of leadership that, uh, that takes aim at Paul. They have either believed lies or made up lies about Paul, but they're spreading them either way. And so Paul is assaulted. They want him gone. They want him dead. Paul gets arrested by the Roman authorities, right? Because they're controlling the land at the time. And, and so now he is under arrest, being accused of things that aren't true about him. And the Roman governor knows that Paul's innocent here, but if he, if he gives Paul over to the Jewish leadership, they're going to put him to death, and they don't want to deal with that mess. And so they've got him under arrest. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do, and things are dragging on. And we're going to see just how long this whole process drags on for Paul while he faces injustice after injustice. Acts chapter 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Felix is the governor. She was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is true. It is trustworthy. We know that it is powerful and that you use it to convict us, challenge us, and even change us. So we trust that you will do that today, Lord, that we will be not just encouraged but that we would be encouraged, built up, moved, and made different by your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about evangelism, okay? We're going to get into it. Do a little bit of talk about evangelism because we see it happening here all throughout the book of Acts, but here is a really good example. And we probably need to talk about evangelism from time to time, maybe more often than we do because most Christians don't do it. They just don't. We got the studies in. Lifeway Research does the studies. Uh, uh, Barna Research does it. Most Christians are slow to share their faith. In fact, there was a study done in like 2016 through Lifeway Research where they were asking the unchurched if they have Christian friends, like evangelical friends, friends who go to church and believe the Bible. 
And of all of them that said, yes, we do, we have Christian friends. I'm unchurched, I don't go to church, I don't believe that stuff, but I have friends that are, when asked, uh, how often do they share the gospel with you or do they share the gospel with you, 40% of them said, they never share the gospel with me. They don't take the opportunity. Also, all of the studies show that unchurched, non-Christian, non-believing people are generally open to having spiritual conversations, conversations about Jesus. And while it does feel at times as if the world is so hostile to the gospel and to Jesus that you might be afraid to step out there and share, most of the people that you're going to run into in life are willing to have a conversation, if you're trying to actually talk to them, about the things that matter to you and the things that have changed your life, namely Christ. So, I want to get into this, but we, I think part of the conversation that we need to have is, is, what is it that we're supposed to share? Because if you're thinking about evangelism, and even the word can sound big and programmatic, evangelism, like it sounds like some official thing that happens, and it, it sounds pretty weighty and complex to some of us, and it shouldn't be that way. And sometimes it's made complex because some, sometimes, do you know what it's like? Sometimes the loudest voices in a particular group are the ones that shouldn't be talking. Have you experienced that before? You know, you've been in a group and it's like, wow, man, that person's doing a whole lot of talking. I really wish they wouldn't because they're focusing on the wrong thing. Because the Bible has a lot to say about a lot of stuff. And sometimes the loud voices out there are focusing on things that may be true, but they're just not quite as relevant or pressing as the gospel. And so I don't want to suggest that we avoid topics, but I am saying that we should know what we're supposed to focus on, right? Not every conversation is a good fit to discuss creation, right? Creation is good, but not every conversation is fit for that. But every conversation is ultimately going to be fit for the gospel. Sometimes you have to start with something like creation to get to the gospel. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but it isn't our main message, some people go with something biblical like that. Other people like to go towards more, uh, you know, tangential sort of ideas that stem out of the Bible. They focus on conspiracies and conspiracy theories, which may or may not be true. And then they're known for this sort of messaging. This is what they're about, right? Some people focus on prophecy or politics, right? Prophecy, the, the various things that, that are promised or predicted about the end, and they start to put it all together, and then that's their jam. That's what they talk about. Their evangelism is very much focused on what's coming at the end. It's less about Jesus and more about time frames or politics. Again, the scripture touches on these things, right? If they don't outright address them, these are important subjects. Politics is important. But it's not the main message of the Bible. Neither is angels or the age of the earth. Biblical concepts that we should understand and that we have to talk about. And if we're going to be disciples, we have to know about these things. But the main message, the main thing that we should be talking about is the thing we seem to talk about the least amount of the time. So I just want to encourage us to be a people who know God's word and seek to know all of it and seek to teach all of it, but when it comes down to our evangelism, that we are relentless in pushing one particular message when we get the opportunity. That is the message that saves. So here's the principle that I want us to hold on to today as we look at these few verses. Evangelism is a patient proclamation of the gospel that calls upon everyone to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the principle. I know it's a long one. But evangelism, we can define it in a bunch of different ways. There's no one right way to define evangelism unless you're completely leaving out essential components of it. 
But evangelism is a patient proclamation, so keep that in mind. We'll see why it is that. A patient proclamation of the gospel, it's not of anything and everything, that ultimately calls upon people, everyone, to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. So we're going to divide our time into two. We're going to talk about the proclamation and invitation of the gospel, and then we're going to talk about the patience and perseverance of evangelism. So proclamation and invitation as it relates to evangelism, patience and perspective. First, proclamation and invitation. We talk about this a lot here at Redeemer, what the gospel is and isn't. We talk about it even in our membership class. We have a whole section dedicated to being very clear about what the gospel is. So let's say it like this. The gospel is a noun. It is not a verb. You don't get to gospel throughout your day. You're not gospeling all day long as a Christian. That's not what you do. The gospel is something that has been done. It has been accomplished. It has happened. The gospel is historical truth as well as doctrinal truth. It is something that happened in space and in time. The gospel is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's one way we could say it. Or if we want to put a finer point on it and agree with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we can just say that the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not anything else. That's what it is. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to explain what that means and why those things are so important, but that's what the gospel is. The gospel isn't what you do. It's what Jesus did. It's not your works. It's Jesus' work in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to what Paul says about the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying, like, listen, you know this gospel. I've preached it to you. You stand in it. You believed it. You received it. And then he says this in verse 3. For I delivered to you this gospel, right? I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel, This is the good news, that's what gospel means, and this is what we proclaim. This is what we preach. It's not what we do, or what we have done, or what we will do. It's not a lifestyle. It's not even merely a set of propositions. The gospel is Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we preach this. We preach it, sometimes it's summarized, right? Paul says what? I preach Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 23. We preach, the, we, we proclaim the Lord's death every week in the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. We proclaim the Lord's death week after week until he returns. It is the message that we have for the world. It is the message that we have for ourselves. This is why Jesus tells us in Mark 16, 15, that we should be proclaiming the gospel to every creature throughout the earth. This is our message. This is our point. This is our emphasis. It is not everything that we have to say, but it is the most important thing that we have to say, and it's supposed to be the thing that we're known for saying above everything else. The gospel is to be proclaimed, heralded, right? Heralded. I love that word. I love that word. Hark the herald angels sing. And we see this, right? We see this sort of thing at the birth of Christ and at the resurrection of Christ. It's an announcement. That's what a herald is. It's an announcement. God has arrived. God is with us. The Messiah is here. The birth of Christ is this great announcement 
The gospel has now begun to take on flesh and bone in space and in time. And then the announcement again, it is resurrection, right? The first to report and make the announcement, right? The first humans were the ladies going back to the disciples. We were all wrong. He's, a, he's alive. He's raised. Let's go. The gospel is something that we herald, we announce, we proclaim. Yes, we preach it. And let me just say this about preaching the gospel. Anytime anybody, man or woman, shares the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection with another person, it is preaching. It's not formal preaching. I'm doing what you call formal preaching, where I open up a text and I speak to a a congregation, and it can be good or bad, but it is, like it or not, formal preaching. But when you share the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with anyone, regardless of their age or where you're at or how well it's done, you are preaching the gospel. That's what you're doing. We're all called to do this, to bear witness, to herald this good news. And when we preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're not just preaching that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again, but that in his life, death, and resurrection, he is taking the place of sinners. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He is doing everything right where we have done everything wrong. When he dies on the cross, he is suffering the punishment of sins that we deserve so that we instead can experience life and freedom. He experiences the curse so that we could be cured. He receives the justice of God that we might receive the mercy of God and in his resurrection, with his resurrection, we are given the promise of a resurrection of our own. The blessings of salvation, right? what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, what he gives to us, so many, so many things. I just want to name three, right, because we don't have time to get into all of them. But what are all the blessings? What does God give us? He gives us his son, right? Well, that's sort of incomprehensible what that would mean. So so, so here's part of what it means. It means that he, he forgives us of our sins. That's what it means. He forgives us of our sins. This is... Ephesians 1, 7, right? We have redemption through his blood, right? So the death of Jesus is redemption. That is the forgiveness of our sins. Everyone knows guilt, everyone. I don't care how jaded, how hard-hearted, how tough you think you are, how calloused your heart or your conscience is, everyone still feels the weight of guilt at some point in their souls. There are some things you just can't, escape from. Everybody knows it. Everybody, whether they admit it or not, everybody knows that, that at some point they are guilty and they can't rid themselves of the burden. They can't wash it off. They can't scoop it out. They can't do enough to make up for it, though they'll try. Jesus gives us the forgiveness of our sins by the highest authority, by the one who has been sinned against more than any others. He extends forgiveness He gives us what? He gives us life. He calls it eternal life. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, he gives us life. Now, listen, we can talk to people about life. They understand that basic concept, life, right? Oh, it's, 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 it's everything, right? It's, it's mobility, it's, it's, it's joy. I mean, life is, is action and activity, right? Well, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he means a lot of different things. Sometimes he talks about abundant life, life that is overflowing and springing up within you. It is an abundant life that connects us to the life that we have with God. In fact, Jesus says that the eternal life that we have is not just the promise of heaven. It's not just a guaranteed spot in eternity that will go on forever. 
Eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, is communion with God. Like that's what it really is. Jesus says in John 17, I have come that they might have, no, Jesus prays to the Father and he says this. He says, um, I have come that they would have eternal life and this is eternal life, that they would know you and the one that you have sent. That's what Jesus says. Eternal life is knowing God, communing with God, being reconciled to God. It's so much more than what people think, like, oh, so I get a ticket to heaven. Who cares? What is that? Well, the reason the ticket to heaven matters is because it's not a ticket to a destination. It's entrance into a relationship with your maker. It's a reformation of your mind and your heart and your soul so that you are becoming the person God has designed you to be, namely more fully human. He restores to us joy and peace, and we have this promise of a resurrection, which we could talk about, the, the promise of a, of a future that is not disembodied existence in the spiritual realm, but we will walk the earth with resurrected bodies. We will have fellowship with one another. We will live and breathe and laugh and eat and have sweet fellowship forever. It's a restoring of all things. That's where God is taking us, a restoring of everything in creation. The benefits of salvation are beautiful, and we do proclaim Christ and his benefits. Christ lived, died, and rose again for sinners. Why? To give us all that we lack, to restore what we have broken, and to forgive sinners. This is what we proclaim. We preach this. This is the most deep and profound truth in Scripture, the gospel. This is why John, this is why John 3.16 is more profound than anything else we could ever come up with. John 3, I know John 3.16 is a verse that people are sort of like, it's played out because it's, it's been on you know, cardboard signs at every football game for the past 50 years or more, like it's just, like we see it everywhere. It's t-shirts, it's become memes now. We've replaced John 3.16 with the name of a wrestler or something like that. It, it, like John 3.16 is just sort of everywhere. We just feel like, ah, I know it, it's played out. Of course, it's not played out. We just get so familiar with something that it begins to lose its meaning, but there is nothing more profound than John 3.16, nothing. There is nothing deeper than John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that's profound. Have you seen the world? I don't love it. I should. I mean, not in the sense of idolatry or like pledging allegiance to a philosophical system that hates God, but I just mean like we're supposed to love our neighbors, right? We're supposed to love what God has made. I look at the world and half the time I'm just super depressed and angry. And it's God's world that he made and it's rebelled against him and he loves the world. That is profound. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The generosity, the kindness, the grace, the patience of God is deep and profound. This, we proclaim, we preach this. God loves sinners. He sent Christ to die for sinners. He receives all who believe. But we don't just make a proclamation, right? We don't just make a proclamation. We don't just throw tracks out there with, this, with these facts on it and then run away, right? What we do is, is we make an appeal, right? We preach the gospel. We proclaim God's excellencies. We do all of that. But then we invite people to respond. We offer an invitation 
right? We call people to respond to this offer, to this promise. Look again at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. There's there's the appeal that's going to be made. He's not just speaking to him about Jesus, but faith in Christ Jesus. He's not just talking about what Christ did, but what we need to do in response to what Christ did and what we're supposed to do in response to what Christ did. The primary call on us is not to do, but to believe. That's the primary call. Faith. Faith in Christ Jesus. What is faith? Lots of different definitions out there. Uh, I'm just going to read Hebrews for us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We cannot please God apart from faith. But in faith, by faith, we do please God. And that's not because suddenly then our works are perfected by our own doing or that our faith itself is even perfect. But it means that we have come to believe, trust, rest upon the goodness of God and the offer of salvation in Jesus so that our works are acceptable because they're coming from a place of sincerity. Our works are acceptable because they are purified by the blood of Christ himself. The author of Hebrews also says this about faith. Here's what it is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. There is a confidence in faith, right? Not a superiority complex, not a know-it-all, like I know better than you kind of confidence, but a confidence in the promises of God. I believe what God has said. The key word here to understand what faith is, is trust. We talk about this at Redeemer from time to time, and essentially we talk about it in our membership class called orientation. But there are different components to faith, and you gotta have all these three components for it to actually be faith. Faith is more than mere knowledge of facts or events, right? Somebody can know that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. They can know those things. They can have those facts accumulated in their mind and still not believe. That's not necessarily faith. You could even know about these facts, that like you can articulate them, like life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and even what they offer to sinners who, who believe in Christ by faith. You could have that information. You could even assent to it, right, to agree with it, that this is good and it's true. You could agree that it's true and still not have faith. The demons agree that it's true. You can agree that it's true and not yet believe. You see, faith is essentially trust. That's the... That's the essential component, right? You have to have some sort of knowledge and assent to get to this point, but it is fundamentally trust. It's when you rest yourself entirely on it to support you, to save you. You are no longer trusting in yourself or your own knowledge or your own goodness. You are trusting in Christ and Christ alone completely to be the person, the being that saves you from your sin, from death, from meaninglessness and purposelessness, from the tyranny of sin, from the attacks of the devil, from your own corrupt heart. Jesus is the one, the only one that saves us from it all. So we trust, we rest upon him. That's what we do. Faith. Faith is not doing. It's believing. That's not to say that doing doesn't matter. It does. God cares about what we do, right? He's given us commandments. Jesus preaches whole sections uh, in, in Matthew 
about what we ought to do. Some of the books of the Bible that we have, James in particular, like it's, it's very much on what to do and how to live. Look at the book of Proverbs. Like God cares about what we do. What we do matters. Our works are important. Good works. Good works are works that are done in faith for the glory of God and the good of others and our own soul enrichment, okay? Those are important. But they do not reconcile us to God. Our works do not obtain for us a relationship with God. It is faith and faith alone that receives the offer of salvation once and for all time. Faith is what holds us close to Christ and Christ close to ourselves. Faith is trusting, not doing, but a trusting faith will result in doing. Let me just give you a, a couple of verses out of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the two first verses in the New Testament that I memorized as a Christian uh, out of, out of uh, NIV. That was the, my translation at the time, NIV. Praise God for the NIV. It, it led me to the Lord. So, uh, but I don't remember how it said, said uh, in NIV anymore. But, uh, but in, in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, not of yourself, not of works lest any man should boast. You have been saved by God's grace. It's a gift through faith, received by believing, by trusting. We receive God's generous gift with the open arms of faith. That's it. Faith alone. But then in verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship. That is, we are created, right? We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus created for good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So yes, what you do matters. It matters how you live matters. How you raise your kids matters. How you treat your spouse matters. How you treat your neighbor matters. It's important. But it's not what brings you to God. Faith is what unlocks salvation for the sinner. So that is a call to response. We call people to believe but there is another component of the invitation, and we see it here in this passage, and that is the call to repent. Now, the call to believe the gospel and the call to repent are not the same exact thing. They are different, but they are connected. And we see this call to repent and this promise of God's mercy throughout Old and New Testament, right? To repent is to turn away from sin, unrighteousness. It's to turn away from what you're holding on to that's wrong. It's to turn away from idolatry and to turn towards God and the promise that we have in Jesus, right? So it's a turning. It's a changing of the mind and the heart. It's an endeavoring to look over here and to go this way. That's what repentance is. But look at verse 25. Here's, here's where we see it. And as he reasoned, here's, here's what Paul's talking about, faith in Christ, but then he says this, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away, <laughs> because I, I wouldn't want to hear Paul talking about how messed up I am either. I didn't like it when people were pointing out how messed up I was, right? It's a hard thing to receive true words about your own failure, especially when you're getting down to the core of who you are. I thought Paul was talking about faith. Why is he talking about righteousness and self-control and judgment? It's because you can't talk about the good news of redemption unless you understand first that you need to be redeemed. Paul laid out law in order to then lay out gospel. The law is what? God's standards. What he requires of us, what he demands. That we love our neighbor as ourselves. That we love him before everything else. We don't do those things. That's law. Law commands. It calls for obedience. 
And the law shows us what? The law shows us what's good, God's ways. The law shows us what's wrong, our ways. I haven't lived up to God's standards. I haven't done the right thing. I've put myself before him and, from, and before everybody else. The law is good, it's not bad, it just, it can't save because it shows you how you fail. The law then shows you that you need something that you lack, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. You need help, you need hope. You need something beyond yourself, something you don't deserve and can't earn. So Paul preaches the law so he can preach the gospel. He's trying to help Felix and Drusilla understand that there is a standard that they do not live up to. All have fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's what he's showing him. So he talks about righteousness. And what is righteousness? Here we're talking about the standard of God, to love others, to love God, to do what is right, to not be the way that we are. He, he establishes that there is a standard that Felix does not measure up to. And he mentions self-control. We don't know why he mentions self-control, but I think it's fair to believe that this is a point of application of the standard of righteousness where Felix and we all fall short, self-control. Because it's easy to go like God has a standard, yeah, he does, and people fall short, yeah, they do. But in evangelism, what we're doing is we're trying to help people to understand that they have fallen short, that they have missed the mark, and that they too need God's grace. This is why Jesus in his, in his parables, in his teaching, so oftentimes mentions like the older brother sort of concept, right? Because we think like, oh, the, the, the prodigal son, the one that went away and he did all the bad stuff. And boy, he needed grace and forgiveness and redemption because what a mess this guy was. Look at how bad his life was. And he comes back and his father receives him with gladness. But that's not really the point of that parable. Really the point of the parable is the older brother who's constantly complaining and bitter in his heart because I'm the good kid. I'm the perfect one. I'm the golden boy. I do everything right. But my, my father's not partying about my obedience. He's not celebrating my faithfulness. He's jealous of the younger brother. See, they both need redemption, but for different reasons. One needs redemption from his own sense of morality, while the other needs redemption from his immorality. He talks about judgment. He talks about righteousness, self-control, a, a point of contact where he fails, and then he talks about judgment. There will come a day... There will come a day where you will have to answer for your sin, for your transgressions. God is just and he will punish sin. There will be an accounting. You will stand before him. You will give a response. There will be a measurement of justice for all that you have done. He points to the end. You will stand before God regardless of what you think now. You will stand before him and there will be an answer. And the question sometimes comes like, okay, so how do we convince somebody of these things? Like we're talking about Jesus and what he did, and then we're talking about faith, we're talking about repentance. How do we persuade them? How do we actually pull it off? Right, like, I mean, what's our hope in changing their mind? You should have no hope that you can change their mind. You cannot change their mind. I certainly can't change their mind. I tried a lot. What's interesting is what Jesus says in John 14 and John 16 about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does when he comes. Do you remember? In John 16, verse eight, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's, that's what Paul was just talking to Felix about. Paul knows, like, I can't convince this guy. 
I need to tell the truth and I need to tell it in a way that he'll hear me because I want him to comprehend. I want him to take these words seriously. But ultimately, the changing of the mind and the heart, that's God. And he sends his Holy Spirit to do that very work. That's our confidence here. That's our boast. That's why we proclaim and we invite. And if we're going to do this, if we're going to proclaim and invite people in our evangelism, proclaim the gospel and invite people to respond, we need to do so with patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. It takes patience and perseverance because you're going to experience opposition. If you preach the gospel, you're going to experience opposition. And opposition will take different forms, right? It takes different forms. If you preach the gospel to people, if you take the time to actually lay out the good news, uh, you know what? Sometimes the opposition is just embarrassment, Right, you just get embarrassed because you didn't do it great, or you, you feel like it sounded stupid, or maybe they caught you in a question and you didn't have an answer for it. It happens to me. You're like, I don't, I don't have an answer for that one, you know? But then I go back to what I do know. Right? And maybe it's not embarrassment. Usually, if you are embarrassed, you shouldn't be. But sometimes, right, like the opposition is just mocking. You're going to get mocked, belittled, teased, made fun of. They're going to hurt your feelings. Or you have to be more serious than that. Like the, sometimes the opposition is rejection from coworkers, friends, or even family can reject you. You can be ostracized or you can be persecuted socially, even sometimes through the government. You can suffer loss. And Paul's in jail. It takes patience and perseverance to do this evangelistic work. Look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped... This is Felix. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him and often conversed with him. Okay, here's, here's a, a kind of opposition that's, that's pretty frustrating, and that is motives. First of all, Paul, okay, Paul's in prison. Felix is in charge. And he says, hey, Paul, Paul, I want to come. Why don't we talk some more? Tell me more about Jesus. But the whole time, he wants money from Paul. What is that? What is he... He wants a bribe. Does he need a bribe? No, homeboy's rich. He does not need a bribe. Uh, but what he's just, he's just leveraging his, his power. He's exploiting. Look, here's the thing. A, a guy incarcerated offers a bribe to somebody in charge. All right, it's not right, but I'm really not bothered. But I understand. Like, okay, homeboy's in bad trouble. He's like, hey, how about if I give you some money? You like leave the gate open during laundry day and I escape. I'm sympathetic to this. Not right. You should pay your dues and all that. But I get it. Like, okay, yeah. But for the one in charge to try to pressure somebody into giving them money that they don't even have, it's, it's, this is not a good guy. He's a bad guy. And so he's, he's, he's inviting Paul to talk again and again, and his motives are wrong. And we get tripped up on that sometimes. Like, well, I, don't, I, I can't talk to them. They, they're, they're, they're engaging with me in bad faith. Like, they don't, they don't really want to hear and, and they have bad motives. And listen, there is a time and a place to say, you know what, I'm not going to converse with this person anymore because they are only hostile. They are only, they're out to reject everything. There's a time and a place, as Jesus says, to kick the dust off your sandals and get moving. But just because somebody has the wrong motives for listening to you or coming to church doesn't mean that somehow the gospel can't break through, that God can't do what only he does. Yes, some people are going to be listening to you or coming to church for the wrong reasons. Sometimes people are skeptical, and they come because they find it to be an intellectually stimulating uh, exercise. We had a person come to our church for years who didn't agree with almost anything that I said from the pulpit, but they loved it. 
They loved it. They came to all the stuff. And they were awesome. This awesome person. We really like this person. They're like, ah, you know, heaven and hell and all this stuff. You know. I didn't dismiss this person. We, no, nobody here dismissed them. Some people are in it for maybe a challenge. They liked being challenged. But you think, like, well, they don't have the right motives. How can we finally or properly reach them? Some people come for, yeah, they're looking to see what they can get out of it because they're greedy or lazy. And some people might even come to church not because they're greedy or lazy, but because they're genuinely needy. And they're saying, hey, I'll come here because I need help. That's not even a bad reason. It's just not the highest reason. Okay, so you're engaging with people that might have wrong motives for listening to you or the gospel or coming to church? Uh, The proper response to that is, who cares? Doesn't matter. Did any of us have the, you know what I heard the, the first time I sat down and listened to the gospel was because there was a girl I wanted to take on on a date and she was like, okay, but we're going to talk about Jesus. And then I was like, deal. Okay. Like, uh, I don't go out on a lot of dates. So this is a win for me. It was like, uh, like, like one of those timeshare uh, pitches that you have, you know, you're like, we'll give you the three day cruise, but you got to sit through a three hour presentation of a timeshare to get it. It was like that, but I got the date before I got the timeshare pitch about Jesus first. So when I, and then she told me about Jesus and what were my motives? I didn't care. Like, like this girl's crazy. I don't, uh, I thought it was cool. Like I thought some of the ideas were cool, but I wasn't really into it. And then I heard more, and I heard more, and I heard more, and eventually God began to change my thinking. He began to change, he began to tear down my presuppositions and expose the rawness of my own unbelief and sin. Yeah, people are gonna come in with bad motives. And that makes evangelism a slog. You know what a slog is, right? It is a slow, brutal, ongoing sort of a, a, a trip. Or trek, it's a slog. For men, sometimes it's quick. Some people, they get to sit on a plane and some dude sits down and they tell them about Jesus and bing, bang, boom, they're Christian. It's like, woohoo. Uh, okay, so that happens. That really does happen. But that individual's life who was just converted didn't begin that in that moment, nor did their experience of, of probably hearing the gospel. And certainly they've been prepared by God over a period of time for that very moment. It's a slog for most of us. Most of the time, Listen, that's not any science, I don't have any scientific data. I know there have been studies, we could look it up, some research done anyways. But uh, in my experience, if you begin to share the gospel with somebody and they don't know it, they've never heard it, and then you begin to invite them into your life and you're sharing the gospel and you're calling them to faith and repentance, on average, I find it to be in this area at this, in the past 30 years, about a year. It takes about a year before somebody believes. Now, it doesn't always take a year. Sometimes it takes 19 years. Took my dad 19 years of hearing the gospel from me, 19 years of reading the Bible to him, reasoning with him. Whenever I had the opportunity, hey, let's talk about it some more. What about you, dad? I know you think it's interesting, but what about you? 19 years of hearing the gospel, and he finally was converted, baptized here. It took me nine months. It's a slog. And the reason it's a slog is because conversion is impossible. It's impossible. It's not something that we can do. It's not something that I can make happen. It's not something that we can make happen to ourselves even. Conversion is not just picking a new affiliation or team. It is a change of heart, right? It is being born again. It is being regenerated that that, that results in this response of faith and repentance. 
It takes God to do that. The reason evangelism is such a slog is because the human heart, as it says in Jeremiah, is desperately wicked and deceitful. No one can really understand it. It takes divine supernatural power, the same power that created the heavens and the earth, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It takes that power to convert a sinner. That's why it's a slog. Not because it takes God a long time, but because it takes divine power and he decides when it happens. So yes, our job is to preach the gospel faithfully, earnestly. See, be patient, but be earnest. Be earnest. We don't, uh, we don't just preach patiently and then not care. Right? We, shouldn't, we shouldn't present the gospel as, of, hey, man, you know what? This is like a good multivitamin. I hope you like it. I hope you take it because um, it's going to make you feel better. If you don't, eh, what are you going to do? That's not what we're saying. We're saying that these are people that we know are individual souls made by God, created for God's glory, created to experience joy and happiness and fulfillment and purpose, to be set free from the devil, to live for God's glory. All of this, they're made for that and they're missing out on it. And God offers them rescue from all of that mess, redemption, reconciliation, everything. And we want them to experience what we've experienced takes patience, takes time. And look, and by the way, speaking of time, verse 27 says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, unfortunate name, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years for nothing. Did nothing wrong. There's no good reason. Nobody just wants to deal with it. Then maybe he's stringing them along because he's hoping at some point Paul's going to cave and give him a bribe or something. But for whatever reason, Paul's stuck there for two years for no good reason. Talk about a, a dark providence that you can't really make sense of. But what's Paul doing during this time? Talking about Jesus. He knows it takes time. You know what? Maybe, just maybe, in Paul's mind is this concept. I hope it would be in our mind. Maybe part of the reason why I'm stuck here in this unjust, cruel situation is so that this person's going to hear about the gospel. Who else is going to tell him if not me? We should be patient and earnest here. So in our evangelism, what are we doing? We're proclaiming and inviting. We're being patient and we are persevering. So I want to wrap this up with, with uh, an encouragement here because I don't want this to be, hey, you people, do better for crying out loud. Look at y'all not evangelizing, okay? We can all do better. We all need to do better. I want to do better. I want to preach the gospel more in this first quarter of, of 2024 than I did all last year. That's what I want to do. I don't know if I can pull that off. But I want to share. I want to step out. I want to have more conversations. I sh we should all want to share the gospel more than we have in the previous year. So you can ask yourself some questions like, so who do I know? Let's start with some questions. Who do I know that doesn't know Jesus? And then write those names down. Don't put them on a list like they're going to come by and see and be like, what the heck is that? Like, that's a little weird. Why am I like a hit list? Like, uh, or maybe you can explain why they're on the list if they do see it. But like, have a list. Write down the names of the people that you know that don't know Jesus. That's a start. That way you're going to keep them in your mind. Hopefully keep them on your heart. And then ask yourself, what am I doing about the, the names on that list? What am I doing about it? Here's, here, here's what you can do about it once you get the names. It could be one person. Maybe you know one person. Maybe you know 50 and you're going to have to pare it down. Once you've got your list, here's what I'll encourage you to do. All right, so number one, identify these people carefully. Like make sure you know who they are, like, you know, as much about them as you can. You want to have a 
good understanding of them, right? But then pray for them. You're going to pray. You're going to pray earnestly that God would give you opportunity to talk to them. You're going to pray uh, that God would be preparing their hearts to hear and respond well to the gospel, to the good news. You're going to be praying that God would bring other Christians into their lives, not just you. Pray for God to save them. Number three, invite them. Look, uh, most Christian, most Non-Christians, non-church people, if they are invited to church, they are willing to go. Most of the time, they're willing to try. If you have a relationship with them. If you're hey, this is my church, I love my church, why don't you come with me? Most of the time, they're willing to come. The majority of them are anyways. Ask them, invite them to church. Now, why? Inviting them to church isn't evangelism. Not exactly. But guess what happens when they get to church? If it's a gospel church, they're going to hear the gospel. And by the way, you're not just inviting them to church... When you do that, you're inviting them into your life. Or you're inviting them into your experience. Hopefully, you're not just inviting them to church. Hopefully, you're inviting them over for chili. Uh, you know, maybe you're going you're gonna to invite them um, to, 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 to watch a game or to go to the park and hang out and your kids can all play at the playground. You're going to invite them into your life because most of us, I don't know about most of us, I think a lot of us have seen it and experienced for ourselves. Like we come into the community of faith before we're converted. We're hearing the gospel. We're convicted of our sins. We're seeing all these things that God is doing. We can't make much sense of it, but it sure looks beautiful. It begins to look beautiful. It begins to seem pretty enticing, and we want it, and then maybe we begin to seek. Maybe we begin to ask questions. I've said it before here. My mom and dad both fell in love with these people here, the people of the church, before they ever loved God. So yes, uh, invite them. Invite them. And then fourthly, share what you can Listen, you don't have to be a super theologian or a professional apologist. We need super theologians and professional apologists. Those are great. You don't have to be that to share the gospel. To share the gospel, all you are doing is you're just telling another sinner like yourself where you found life. You're just saying, my sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. Like, I've come to understand God's love because he sent his son to die for us. And I, I believe... People are more persuaded just to listen, right, to give ear to a heartfelt, honest response like that than a cold presentation of facts that may be unassailable in terms of logic. Share what you know. Share what you have experienced. And let it come from this place. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to close with this. Our expression of evangelism, our expression of the gospel towards those who need it should come from who we are, not just that we're told to do so. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So proclaim his excellencies to all who will listen and trust that God will do the work of conviction and conversion. Let's pray. God, we trust that you will teach us what we need to know today. Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't yet believed in Christ, perhaps, but it's not hard for you to do. It's, it's, it's so hard for us to imagine how, but it's not hard for you to change a person's mind or heart. 
We pray that you would do that today. That anyone who hasn't yet believed is believing today, this very moment, trusting in Christ and being declared your child. We pray that you would give them a, an insatiable hunger for your word and for your, your church or your, your family. We pray, God, for all of us as Christians who are here, Lord, that you would revive us if that's what we need, that you would revive us and give us a burning passion, a fire in our bones to, to tell others about your Son, our Lord, that they might share in the good news that we have come to believe and experience. In Christ's name, amen.